0: Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. I want to start with this. So the first talk here is what is Theology of the Body and why does it matter? Um... Does anybody know? I'm just kidding. Okay, we're going to go into it. All right. So Theology of the Body, also known as TOB, it's a title given by St. John Paul II to his first maging teaching project of his pontificate. It was delivered between, uh, It was delivered on Wednesday general audiences between September 5th, 1979 and November 28th, 1984. So you know how the Pope would get up, he would do his Wednesday audiences. This was this first maging teaching project of the Holy Father's pontificate. He says this in... Uh, um, the 64th address. He says, After a rather long pause today, we will resume the meditations that have been going on for some time, which we have defined as reflections on the theology of the body. Okay. That long pause that he's referencing there, by the way, that's when he was shot. Okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, it makes it sound like I went on vacation. No. <laughs> He was like a commie assassin trying to take him down. He's like, after a long pause, we're coming back to this. So here's the thing. He'd been working on this long before he became pope. So uh, Cardinal Karol Wojtyla, Archbishop, Cardinal Archbishop of Krakow, he'd been working on this manuscript, this handwritten manuscript that he began on December 8th, which is the Solemnity of... The Immaculate Conception, right? It was dedicated to Mary at the time. It said, Toda Pulcher Est Maria. You are all beautiful, Mary, right? So it was it began on uh, December 8th. Handwritten manuscript that he brought with him to the first conclave of 1978. Remember, there's two conclaves in 1978, right? So you had Paul VI die. All the cardinals come to Rome to elect Albino Luciani, who takes the name of Pope John Paul I. And all the cardinals were like, uh, excuse us, Holy Father, Just you're just Pope John Paul. You don't have to add the first to it. And he goes, no, 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 there will be another, right? So Albino Luciani, John Paul I, he's pope for 33 days, and he's like, I'm out of here, right? He was probably killed, but what's another talk for another day? Anyway, so 33 days in his pontificate, he did a Wednesday audience on faith, one on hope, one on love, and then he died. So the cardinals come back to Rome for the second conclave of uh, 78, and this time, so during that first conclave, I meant to say this, Carol Votie was working on this manuscript, right? He's thinking, I'm just going to publish this as a book. So he leaves it in Poland, comes back, 1978. They elect him the first non-Italian cardinal in 500 years. He takes the name John Paul II, right? And he becomes uh, the, the apostle to the nations in many ways. And so his first, his first apostolic visit was to go back to Poland. And historians say it was probably because he wanted to pick up his manuscript because he left it there. <laughs> it's like, gosh, I should have brought that. right? So he goes back. <laughs> To Poland, gets the manuscript, and then begins uh, teaching the world. So, the original title of the work is Man and Woman, He Created Them, but in the text he adds different titles. So, I don't know if these quotes are in your workbook. If they are, that's great. Okay, so he adds this The whole of the catechesis that I began more than four years ago, in fact, more than five years ago, and that I conclude today can be grasped under the title Human Love in the Divine Plan, or with greater precision, The Redemption of the Body and the sacramentality of marriage. So that's the title of the work. But Theology of the Body is so much more than just a title of a book. It's so much more than that. It's, it's We can put it this way. I meant to bring... You don't have Humana Vitae with you, do you? Not humanity. What kind of Theology of the Body yeah. teacher? Okay. Um, okay. But, uh, what, do you, what do you want? I just wanted to show the difference. Okay, okay. so uh, in many ways, Theology of the Body, right, the collection of the essays, is is... It's John Paul II's personal response to what Pope Paul VI called for in his encyclical in 1968, *Humani Vitae, right? So, *Humani Vitae comes out July 1968, Pope Paul VI, he upholds the Church's traditional teaching on contraception, which shocked the world. The Catholic Church was the last Christian Church standing to say that the usage of contraception is intrinsically evil. All the other Christian Churches had fallen. After 1930, the Anglican Church started it. Thanks, England. Anyway, so the Lambeth Conference, they opened the door. All the following Christian denominations followed suit after that, leaving like dominoes. They get to the Catholic Church, and they're holding strong, and everyone's thinking the church is going to change its teaching. Pope Paul VI releases Humanae Vitae. He says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. In Human Vitae, he says to fully grasp this teaching, he's like, we need a total vision of man. That's the phrase he uses, a total vision of man. We need a new adequate anthropology. We need an adequate anthropology, a new way to understand what the human person is, what the human person is. So this tiny little encyclical that's like this big. In order to understand this tiny little encyclical, John Paul II's II like, all right, here you go, world. Like, here's this. Here's this book. That's what this provides. It provides an adequate anthropology to understand what a human person is, to understand why contraception is a problem, right? So that's another way we can say what theology of the body is. It's an adequate anthropology. Um, isn't that a great picture? I don't have any reason for that picture other than it's adorable. So... Um, <laughs> An adequate anthropology is answering several questions about the big questions of life. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What is the nature and purpose of the family? What is the meaning of our human embodiment? Why do we have these desires? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And most importantly, how do we get there? Like This is kind of what an adequate anthropology is answering. These are the questions we all need to have answered we're going to know how to live well. Because humanity is unique among God's creatures, right? Like, only human persons ask the question, what, like, what ought I do? Like, there's no chickens clucking around any barnyard asking the question, is there more to life than this barnyard existence? Like, am I, am I living up to my chicken potential, right? There's no chicken asking that question. But we human beings, we experience our lives as a task. As something we have to grow into, that we have to become something, right? So, what I want to do is, I want us to look at um, the structure of the teaching. We can break it down, we can think of it in this way. The TLB is seeking to answer two fundamental questions What does it mean to be human? And how do I live my life to find true happiness? Those are the two fundamental human questions. What does it mean to be human? How do I live my life to find happiness? And under that first question, he breaks it down by answering, Our origin, our history, and our destiny. Where do we come from? Where are we now? And where are we headed? And in the answer to the question of how do I live my life to find true happiness, he breaks it down in terms of celibacy, which I'll talk about in my talk, marriage, and the sexual union. So understanding... um, Vocations and the meaning of sexuality is the answer to how do I find true happiness. So this is, this is another stru- a way to think about the structure of the teaching. I think in the workbook you have this visual. Is that in there? This is another visual way to answer the question of what is theology of the body? What does it mean to be human? It's an answer that comes in three parts. So we come from God who is love, created male and female in the beginning in God's image and likeness. We are fallen yet redeemed by Christ and we're headed towards eternal union with him in glory. This is, this is what it means to be human right here. So Theology of the Body, we can think of it this way. It's, it's a biblical reflection on the meaning of being created by God, male and female, in his image and likeness. Called to love like God loves, right? And destined to live forever with God. This is a great quote by Mikhail Waldstein, who wrote the introduction to this um, beautiful work. But Mikhail Waldstein, he says this, that in Theology of the Body, John Paul II's vision is focused on the mystery of love that reaches from the Trinity. That's what that triangle is up there, right? Reaches from the Trinity through Christ's spousal relation with the church, which we'll talk about, to the concrete bodies of men and women. That's what Theology of the Body is. It's how God's Trinitarian love reaches all the way from the Trinity through Christ's incarnate spousal love into the very bodies of us as embodied men and women. God's love touches our bodies to redeem our bodies. All right. To get a better grasp of the historical context of why this teaching matters, we want to take a, we want to zoom out here for a second. I want to zoom out for a second. Take like a 35,000 foot view here for, uh, to grasp the scope and the significance and the importance of this teaching. So we can think of, we can think of the, the church moving through a series of um, eras, which are differentiated by the the different errors that mark them, right? So you can think of the church in kind of three distinct millennia uh, up to this point, right? So the first millennia, the church was dealing with Christological heresies. Christological heresies, meaning on the nature of Christ. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What is a Jesus Christ? That is the question that they're wrestling with. What does it mean um, that God came in the flesh? You had heresies like Arianism, Nestorianism, monophysitism, right? Jesus has one nature, or that Arius was saying that Jesus isn't really God, nor is he really human. He's more like a demigod. He's like a Hercules kind of guy, right? So you had all of these different questions and issues arising over the nature of Christ. That's the first thousand years. Big broad brushstroke. Second thousand years, second millennia, you have ecclesiological heresies over the nature of the church, the body of Christ splintering apart. You had the great Schism between the East and the West in 1066. You had the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, big questions over the nature of Christ's body, the church. And we come to the third millennium where we are not so much Christological or ecclesiological heresies, but anthropological heresies. Questions about the nature of the human person. This is, this is where we are. Fundamentally, we're unclear about what it means to be human. What is a man? What is a woman? what is a family? What is marriage? Like, I, I've often lamented that, like, the, the, the awesome early church martyrs, like, the great church theologians, they used to, they went to their death battling over issues of, like, how is God, this Trinitarian of, relation of persons, or how does, how does God's nature dwell in human flesh? They went, to, they went to their death fighting over these sorts of things, defending church teaching about this beautiful thing about God being in human flesh, and I'm like, I'm probably going to get killed because I'm going to say men are men and women are women. Like, that's, like that stinks. Like, that's like, so uninspiring, right? So, but this is where we are. This is where we are. We're dealing with transhumanism and artificial intelligence and cybernetics and the transgender ideology and homosexual relationships and, and gay marriage. Like, this is what we're dealing with. Everything's up for grabs in this era of uh, anthropological heresies. We're living through some really, really confusing times. Can I get an Amen. amen. Yeah, we are. There's a uh, uh, Christopher West. He has he, he put it this way. I think it's great. So governments, in fact, today are now demanding in law that we identify every body without identifying any body. But when we identify some body without reference to his or her body, we identify quite literally no body. Blah, what? <laughs> uh, but even more than like forgetting what it means to be human, we're forgetting how to be human. We're forgetting how to be human. We're losing what it means for us to live in our humanity. Just look at some of these images for a second. Tell me if like they resonate. <laughs> right. Look who's having the human moment. Right. Yeah. This guy living all the tweet tweet on his phone and this girl. Right. She's like, look at that guy up there. <laughs> Right? Or how about this? Sometimes these pictures speak more than words, right? Remember the Pokemon Go phenomenon? Yeah. How about that, eh? Yeah. All our little prison cells looking out through the social media. That's a tough one. This is a Japanese artist he, he this huge campaign about uh the problem of phones and the the devastation it does to families. Yeah. Now, I'm not like some Luddite saying, like, get rid of your phone. I mean, I'm, I love, to, I'm using an iPad, right? Like, I love this stuff. But, like, are we using it or is it using us, right? Okay. So why has this happened? Why has this happened? Father Brian Bransfield, who wrote a great book called The Human Person, according to John Paul II, he, are, he articulated three main causal uh, influences that have affected our culture, that's brought us to where we are today, just so confused about our humanity. He's pointing to the three significant revolutions of the last few hundred years. First, you've got the industrial revolution. The industrial revolution. Now, be- before I start like slamming these things, let me just say like there's good. There was there is good that motivates these things, right? Like the idea of progress. The idea of having like I, like I love that I've got an iPad. I love that we have air conditioning, right? Like. I could never have been a pioneer, okay? So for so many reasons. I love that I have like glasses and I've had surgeries that have been able to keep my vision, right? So the movement of progress and revolutions, it's not intrinsically bad, but it does come with it. I mean, it's weeds and wheat, right? That's how it is. There's weeds and wheat. But in this industrial revolution, what we see here is this redefinition of the human person in relationship to what he or she can do, right? This is a big time in deep in the philosophy of, of Marxism and communism where like, the, the, the person is reduced to a cog within the machine. You are now not an individual. You are in relation to the state. And within communism, they, the, the idea um, was to eliminate the transcendent destiny of man. And so like when communists would come into a town, one of the very first things that they would do is they would remove the church bells from the churches in the town because those church bells were this transcendent reminder that we're headed somewhere else. And they replaced the church bells... Anybody know with what? The factory work whistle. Get back to work, right? That's what it was, that you are made for work. So that's the first revolution. Then we move into like the 1960s with the sexual revolution, redefining the human person in relationship to the pleasure that he or she can provide, right? And it pushes the idea that the equality between man and woman requires, which like, again, do we want men and women to be equal? Yeah good yes this is good but the error here is that what it required was the erasing of all differences the erasing of all differences in many ways this revolution was was pushed forward and fueled by the contraceptive revolution where it used to be the case that marriage sex and babies went together in that order right remember the the, the nursery rhyme you used to learn first comes love then comes marriage then comes Maybe in the baby carriage, like that's, that's good theology. That's good. That's, that's good anthropology. That's how things should go. Right. But when you introduce contraception into the equation, what you end up doing is you redefine all three. Right. Contraception is like the atom bomb. It's split apart. The basic, like the, the family marriage and marriage uh, between a man and woman is the, is the basic cell of, of society. It's the fundamental building block. Right. And to split it apart, it's like the atom bomb. It's like the atom bomb. And it redefines all three, right? Sex no longer becomes intrinsically procreative, it becomes recreative. Marriage becomes a government stamp of approval on whatever sort of intimacy you most desire and children become either a nuisance to be done away with or a commodity to, you know, to pursue, to enhance whatever your life wants to look like. So that's, I mean, and in many ways, the the devastation of the sexual revolution, um, we're going to be living with this for a long, long time, but moving into the the third revolution, again, the technological revolution, this is, we're just on the cusp of this too, it seems crazy, but there's advances in this, like what this means for civilization, I don't think we can barely grasp, but... Again, not a Luddite, I'm just saying, like these things have really disconnected the human person. We have more time-saving devices and seemingly yes, less time, right? How strange is that? We have more ways to be connected, and yet the sense of disconnection and despair is, has never been higher. What's going on with that? So all of these sorts of things, they kind of created the perfect storm, um, aimed at the destruction and devastation of the human person. So all of this, like, where does it ultimately come from? There is an enemy. There is an enemy. There's an enemy of our human nature. St. Ignatius calls him the enemy of our human nature, whose desire for us we hear in John's Gospel, John chapter 10, the thief comes to steal, to murder, and to destroy. He goes to war against us because of his envy of us. He hates our bodies. He hates the fact that we're destined for union with God. He's gone to war against us. This is the world in which we live in many ways is the fruit of his war against our humanity. So what does God do about this? He raises up saints. You look at church history. God raises up saints to perfectly respond to the crisis of the day. And St. John Paul II, in many ways, is the saint that the Lord raised to confront the heresy in which we're finding ourselves, this anthropological confusion. John Paul II, before he was John Paul II, right, he was Carol Wojtyla. He was a brilliant, brilliant young man, um, actor, poet, philosopher, theologian. This guy was just primed in many ways to have the the capacity to give the world the the antidote. He was a, um, he just had this cultural and aesthetic awareness. He was, like I said, he was a playwright, he was an actor, this deep appreciation for beauty. He was a philosophical genius. He studied Edmund, under Edmund Husserl, and he was a student of the uh, school of philosophy known as phenomenology, which is, the um, best way to put it is, it's allowing things to reveal themselves, to speak, to let things reveal what they are. I mean, it's the perfect response to uh, the, the anthropological chaos, Right. He had this deep love of Carmelite mysticism. He, in fact, he, he went so far as to learn Spanish so that he could read St. John of the Cross in the original Spanish. It's like, bro, like, just read it read in it, read it Polish, right? Like, come on. That's what he did. He, uh, after he was ordained, he was sent to the, the University of Lublin to teach, and he, he, he was such an influential figure in so many of these young people's lives. He entered deeply into their lives, and early on he said, I fell in love with love. And love became the fascination of my life. He went on, he took these young people on retreats up in the mountains, and because the communists were in his country at the time, they didn't call him Father Wojtyła. they called him Wujak, which is Polish for uncle, right? To kind of conceal his identity. He just understood and fell in love with the human person, the human heart, reflecting deeply on the meaning of human love in the divine plan, reflecting deeply on the scriptures, on the words of Christ. And what he gave the world was the antidote to the, the deep poison and confusion that is in the bloodstream of the culture. So just to like demonstrate how like, I don't know, how, how some of these points of confusion, how deep they're in us. We're going to do a real quick pop quiz. OK, true, false. Just answer for yourself. OK, ready. Here's the here's the questions. Man is a spiritual being. Get the answer in your head. True, false. Second question. Man has a spiritual nature. Third question, is this true? I have a body. Some of you right now are thinking, I think so. Man is a spiritual being, true or false? False. You are a human being. I thought, dang it, I should have got that. Man has a spiritual nature, true or false? Now you're all gun shy false you have a human nature you have a human nature let's get really weird I have a body That's <laughs> true. false you are a body I have an iPad I am an iPad no right I have a body I am a body right okay so as so you can see like this seems obvious right this seems obvious but it's not obvious. Okay, so that's where some of the background of theology of the body came from, and why it's so needed today. So I want to transition into um, a little bit more about what it is, um, what it is—the foundational principles that kind of undergird this beautiful teaching—and the I want to get to the main thesis statement that John Paul II gives, what he had to say and teach about what it means to be human. So we're going to start just very basically. We're going to start here with the title of theology of the body. Theology of the body. I say theology. And you think of, give me some words, shout some things out. I say theology, you think of study of God, study of God, right? I say body, and you think of this bag of bones, right? Like this thing up here, right? That's what what we think of, right? What does theology have to do with the body, right? What does it have to do with the body? To say theology of the body, what we're saying is we're saying, God revealed through the body. Theology of the body is the study of God revealed through the body. Through the body. This, sh- this shouldn't sound weird to us, although it probably does. This shouldn't sound weird to us as Christians, although it probably does, because if you believe in Christmas, you believe in the theology of the body. <laughs> Who believes in Christmas? I'm not talking about Santa Claus. I'm talking about Christmas, Right? If you believe in Christmas, you believe in theology of the body. What do we see at Christmas? What we see at Christmas is the Word become flesh. The Word become flesh in the incarnation, March 25th, the Annunciation, the incarnation, even before he was born in Bethlehem, God took on a body. We could put it this way. God, theology, became bodily. Theology took on a body. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the letter the Hebrews, he says, In times past, God spoke in partial and various ways to us through the prophets. But in these final days, he has spoken to us through the Son. He is the Word made flesh. Right? Like you and I, because we're limited, finite human creatures, we have to use a million, billion, trillion words to communicate ourselves. I'm using words right now to communicate, to externalize what's interior to me right? If you're Italian, you do a lot of this, right? That's what you do, right? But we externalize our interiority with a million billion words throughout the course of our lifetime. But imagine if you weren't a limited, finite human creature. Imagine if you could express, express, press out, if you could express your entire interiority with one great word. That's who Jesus is. He's the expression of the Father. He's the revelation of the invisible God. He is the Word made flesh. God is speaking to us through this embodied man, Jesus of Nazareth. Not just when he spoke, not just when he taught parables, not for those three years of his public ministry, but in every moment from the silent, wordless, zygotic existence of Jesus in the womb of Mary, he's revealing, he's speaking. From every moment, from cradle to the cross, he is revealing who God is. And look, despite how much we might struggle with our own flesh or dislike our own flesh, like we do not just get to shuffle off this mortal coil. We do not just get to get rid of this flesh. Like the flesh, the flesh is intrinsic. Your body matters. Your body matters. I want to. I want to waste a few seconds and watch a video just to get us in a good space to start thinking about our bodies because this is hard. This is hard. So let's watch this. If yeah. Have you seen this? <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, let's do this. Team Fever, take one. Five. So, we've got one question that we want to ask you today. Okay, well, what's that question? The question is, if you could change one thing about your body, what would it be? Um, only one. (laughs) Um, I would change my forehead. I have a really big forehead. I'd like to be taller. The puffiness of my face, my ears, my big ears. Stretch marks after having a baby. A lot of times, like kids would make fun of me, like, and then I got big ears. You got Dumbo over there, you know. Definitely my skin, because I've dealt with acne and eczema issues ever since I was a little kid. kid. Growing up like a lot of people call me five head, they're like your friend's so big, they've always like would say something to me about it. When I was younger, I felt like I wasn't quite adequate enough. Can you sit on the chair? No. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you one question. What's the question? If you could change one thing about your body, what would you change? Hmm... Um... Hmm... <laughs> um... You know, have a mermaid tail. <laughs> listen, sharp mouth, you eat a lot of stuff. So I could have teleportation on my bottom. Extra 20 years. I want the kitchen to sort and of run faster. I could have wings that I fly. I don't think there's anything to change. I like my body actually. Dad, you wanna change anything? Nothing else. Just my right <laughs> 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 Uh huh. I about getting older and about the wrinkles. I love my white hair. I loved it when it started turning white. It's one of those things, because I chose to stay this way because it just wouldn't be me if I totally changed the way I look. It wouldn't be me. (laughs) This is just a separate thing from, uh, I guess, the content of the day to maybe take to prayer if you have a chance. In, in the Garden of Eden, after they ate the fruit uh, and hid, God comes in and he asks the question to Adam. And Adam says, Because I was naked and afraid, so I hid myself. And God asks, Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? Knowing the tone of God's question is really important, because I think for many of us, because of our upbringing, because of our what we experienced uh, as kids, our vision of God. I think we hear God saying, "Who told you that you were naked?" <laughs> but it's more like, "Who who told you that? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that your body is a problem?" Who told you that that part of your body is not good? Who told you that those parts of your body are unlovable? Take that to prayer, because it probably wasn't God the Father who looked at you and has a litany over you that sings it is good, 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 it is good. For all eternity it's good. Okay, The flesh, friends. The flesh is not unimportant. It's not a hindrance to our spiritual growth. Like, It's not about getting away from the body, getting away from our humanity. St. Paul says in Romans, we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of our bodies, not just our souls. Jesus didn't come just to redeem our souls. It's a redemption of our bodies. The word redemption, it means like regain. He's trying to give us back the original meaning, the original experience of our bodies. He's trying to get it back for us, that our bodies would radiate in glory. You want to know what your body's supposed to look like? What it's going to look like in in grace and glory? Look at Mary in the Assumption. Look at Mary in the book of Revelation, crowned with the stars, like standing on the moon, her body, she's wearing the sun. This woman is radiating, filled with divine life and glory. We call her our life, our sweetness, and our hope, because that's what we will be by grace. Right? She's not the aberration of human nature. She's not the exemption to the norm. She is the norm. We're the aberration. We're the one that is missing the mark. That's what God is regaining for us. So many of us have grown up thinking something along the lines that like the soul is the holy part of me, the good part of me, the the... Like, that's the part to be protected. We talk about, you know, the, the salvation of souls, you know, saving souls. And that the body is, is the sort of negative, bad part of me. That's what's dragging me down. That's the cause of temptation. It's somehow evil. And those desires that come from my body, that are about my body, they're going to get me in trouble. They're going to be really bad. Right? This idea of spirit good and body bad is not Catholicism. It's, it's an ancient heresy, a Gnostic heresy known as Manichaeism. Manichaeism that sees the world split between these different, differentiated realms. The spirit is good, the material realm is bad. That ain't Christianity. If that was Christianity, the incarnation would be blasphemy. Why would God descend from the spirit realm to take on matter? It would be blasphemy if it was not good. We say in the creed every single Sunday, and yet somehow we don't hear it. We say, I believe in the resurrection of the... Body and life everlasting. Whose body? Not just Christ. Your body, every body. We believe in the resurrection of every body. We believe that the bodies of every loved person that we've ever known that are in the ground will one day be raised up. And right now, there is in heaven two bodies. There is the body of a woman in heaven, Mary. That's why, like, all the... BS about the church being anti-woman, all these things. It's lies. You can't get more exalted than the Catholic Church about our vision of femininity. We put a woman in heaven. She's in the heart of the Trinity. She got there first, right? Like, come on. The church is hierarchical, but humanity like, is feminine in its archetype, right? Like, uh, what are we talking about here? The catechism actually even says that On no point does the Christian faith meet with greater resistance than on the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. Because it seems so patently, obviously false. Because we know that dead people tend to stay dead. That's one of the most distinctive features about dead people. They tend to stay that way. And yet we say there will come a day where all the dead will be raised. All the dead will be raised there'll be a reunification of our bodies and souls, a reintegration of our bodies and souls. St. Paul calls them glorified bodies. Just think right now of what my glorified hair will look like. <laughs> Don't spend too much time on it. You could fall an ecstasy. But, like, it is a thing to behold. <laughs> so, friends, this notion that we, like, We are leaving the body behind when we die and we're finally breaking free and going up to heaven. That's not authentic Christianity. At the heart of of everything is not a soul, it's not a mind, it's a body. At the heart of the mass is this is my body given for you. This is my body given for you. From the Catechism, paragraph 1015, the flesh is the hinge of salvation. We believe in God who is creator of the flesh. We believe in the Word made flesh in order to redeem the flesh. We believe in the resurrection of the flesh, the fulfillment of both the creation and redemption of the flesh. Flesh, 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 right? I can't get more fleshy than this. It's the hinge of salvation. It's the hinge of salvation. So the thesis statement of Theology of the Body, TOB 19.4, we get this. The body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible. The spiritual and divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world, excuse me, the mystery hidden from eternity in God, and thus to be a sign of it. This is what John Paul II calls the sacramentality of the body. What is a sacrament? It's a outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace, some physical, tangible reality that makes an invisible mystery present. Right? As Catholics, we believe that the invisible is made visible through the physical. The invisible is made visible through the physical. Like the body, I, I said it a moment ago, but like the body, my body is a sacrament. Your body is a sacrament. It's just, for example, right? Um, every, eyes up here. Everyone look at my body. Why'd you laugh? I work out, okay? Heart. all right? Um, seriously, why'd you laugh? What? 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 I do work out. You look good, actually. What if I just said, "Everyone, look at me"? Would that have been funny? Jerks. (laughs) Is my face not my body? Feels pretty bodily. Here's what I want us to see. If I were to say, if I say, "Look at my body." Is there something, or if I say, look at me, is there something else besides my body that you can look at? Are you looking at some floating, disembodied ghost part of me that's just hovering above my head? You're like, what are you looking at? If I say, look at me, you're looking at my body. If my body is not here, who's not here? Me, right? If my body's not in the room, I'm not in the room, right? Right? This is so significant. We, we, we have this idea, we have this idea, let me put it this way, like, I'm just going to go to this. We need to understand some major truths about our bodies. I do not have a body, I am a body, right? I am somebody. If my body's not in the room, I'm not in the room. If I, if I were to punch you... I'll just take Tommy because he'd fight back. Okay, if I were to punch Tommy, Tommy would never say, why did you punch my body's arm? (laughs) Right? Does he he take me to court for property damages or does he sue me for, like, assault? Right? You say, why did you punch me? We don't say stupid things like, hey, did you hear that Kristen's mom's body has cancer? Well, I'm glad that she doesn't have cancer. It's just her body. (laughs) Right? What I do with my body, I do. The body and the person, like they're integrated. What happens to our bodies happens to us. What we do with our bodies, we do. Okay, next truth. Our bodies and souls form this integrated whole. They're not separate pieces joined together. Like it's not true to say that I am in my body. Like a pilot is in the cockpit of an airplane or the captain is at the helm of a ship I'm not in my body. I am my body. I am my body. Rene Descartes, the founder, in many ways, the great-great-grandfather of the Enlightenment, the guy who said, I think, therefore I am. He was the one who reduced the human person to a thinking thing, a non-physical, spiritual entity who just so happens to be associated with the mechanistic-like body. Rene Descartes' dictum, I think, therefore I am, it is like it was a seed planted into history that flowered into what we're experiencing now, which is, I think, therefore, I am whatever I think I am. Right? If I'm not intrinsically related to my body, then identity and body become these distinct things. This is, this is the foundation of the chaos that we're experiencing, the transgender phenomenon, So we express our person through our bodies. Ultimately, our bodies are meant to express love. We're made in the image and likeness of a God who is love. Image and likeness of a God who is love. Let's go back to the TOB thesis statement here. The body, in fact, and only the body has been created, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world, the mystery hidden from eternity in God, and thus to be a sign of it. Our bodies are signs. They are significant because they are signs. They're revealing something. They're revealing something. They're revealing, namely, what John Paul II said, the mystery hidden from eternity in God. That's what they're the sign of. So what is the mystery that the body signifies? The Catechism goes on. This is Jen's favorite quote from the Catechism. God has revealed his innermost secret, He's revealed his innermost secret. God himself is an eternal exchange of love. That's what the Trinity is, this eternal exchange of life and love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has destined us to share in that exchange. This is the the mystery that the body is a sign of, God's Trinitarian life and love. Where is that revealed? It's revealed in our bodies, created male and female. In the world of bodies, there used to be a very obvious fact to humanity about human bodies. They came in two varieties, male and female. Remember this? It was like five minutes ago. Okay, male and female. If you're an alien visiting from another planet, coming to this earth, and you're looking at the world of bodies, you would see this difference, and you would maybe ask yourself, what is this difference for, right? What is this difference for? Because each member of the species, this male version, this female version, each of them are radically complete and sufficient regarding almost every aspect of their humanity and biology, right? Like, I've got my own skeletal muscular system. I've got my own nervous system, my own respiratory system. I've got my own digestive system. I can walk on my own, digest food on my own, breathe on my own, think on my own, right? Women, all the same things, right? What I don't have on my own is a reproductive system. None of us do. We have reproductive organs, but only together do you have a reproductive system. And that is significant. That is significant. With the body, in particular those parts of our body that differentiate us as male and female, those parts of our bodies are literally screaming, I am meant for another. I am meant for communion. I'm meant to be given away. I am meant for another the body is speaking this. Like the one flesh union of husband and wife, it's like the love making act. It, it also happens to be the life-giving act, right? It's saying I'm meant to be given away. And so John Paul II, he calls this, this idea of our bodies, he calls it the spousal dimension of the body. Note the perfectly placed branches. I always think that's all so funny. Anyway. Prudes. Anyway. <laughs> He calls this the spousal dimension of the body. The body says, I am a gift meant to be given away in life-giving love. Right When our God, who is a trinity, right? so this is an icon of the trinity, Rubleva, Russian Orthodox iconographer, depicted the Trinitarian persons from the angels that visited Abraham. When our God, who is a trinity, went about to make an image of himself in creation, right? let us make man in our image after our likeness. When he made an image of himself in creation, he didn't just make a man, He didn't just make a woman, he made a couple whose bodies and souls are complementary and reciprocally ordered towards each other in such a way that when the two become one, when they give themselves to each other in love, which is not just simply, let's hold hands, right? I know it's early at St. Mary's, but right, you're with me? Okay, okay. It's not just, let's hold hands. It's not just, let's kiss. It's let's have sex, right? Like when they give themselves to each other in love, When the two become one, they become so much one that nine months later, you have to give that thing a name, right? (laughs) Because they're three in one, right? God has inscribed his Trinitarian identity into our flesh as male and female. He's carved it into our very bodies. The spousal dimension of the body, it does not mean, let me be very clear, it does not mean that every body is called to marriage. That's not what it means. It's not what it means. And it surely does, it does not mean if you are not married that you are somehow less in the image and likeness of God. Many people who, who want to be married, who for some reason aren't or haven't yet, there's many people who wanted to remain married who aren't, and there's people like me who are celibates and weird and wear black all the time. And I don't shop at Hot Topic. That's a joke for the young people, okay? <laughs> this is what John Paul II is getting at. Our human embodiment. Our sexuality, regardless of your vocation in life, it's saying you are a gift. You are a gift and you are meant to be given away in love. You find your fulfillment in the measure that you give yourself away in love. It reveals how we are meant to love. We reveal the Trinity in our human embodiment, but it goes even further. It reveals the way that God wants to relate to us. This maleness and femaleness. John Paul II reflected deeply on Saint Paul's words in Ephesians chapter five, which are the most hated and misunderstood words in Scripture. I had one. I had one of my assignments. I won't tell you which one. I had one of my assignments. The the it was my first assignment. Okay, I'll just tell you. <laughs> the, the I was preaching on Ephesians five, and uh, you know that's where Paul says, "Wives, be submissive to your husbands." Blah, 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 all the things. Husbands, love your wives. Christ love the church. Die, husbands. Okay. So I'm preaching on this and a lady comes up to me after Mass and I'm like, oh, this is not going to be good. Right? She's coming in. She's riding her broom and um, <laughs> that's a debt <dad> giveaway. <laughs> so, so she says, she comes up to me and she's like, you have got to get that out of the Bible. I'm <laughs> oh like, lady, that's about my pay grade, right? Like, Oh, man, it was it's just so misunderstood. And yet John Paul II says, if we grab, Ephesians 5, he says, is the distillation. It is the summa, the compendium of everything that God wanted to say to humanity. It's distilled right there in Ephesians 5. God is trying to communicate his desire. I'm not just simply interested in, spou- in, in a personal relationship. I'm not just simply interested in being buddy Jesus with you. We can kick a soccer ball together and have a poster, and that's great. But that's not all I want. Saying I want relationship with you—that's something that the least inadequate image is that of spousal love. It's like I want to be implicated in everything. I want complete union. Like, have you ever fathomed? Have you ever considered how, how far he wants to go? Like, have you ever paused to consider like where this is all headed? Like when you come to Mass on Sunday, have you considered like the full throttle speed of light love that comes at you in the Eucharist and what that means and like what his intentions are for you? It's deep. It's deep. Paul says in Ephesians, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis. Then he says this. This reality, right? This reality, earthly marriage, he says, this reality is a great mystery. Mysterion mega in the Greek. It's a great mystery. But I speak, it speaks in reference to Christ and the church. This reveals this. And if you want to understand what he's doing St. Paul is saying, John Paul II is saying, look at this. If you want to understand it, look at married love. Look at spousal love. It's the, it's the decoder ring. It's the thing that makes sense of the whole thing. That's what it is. John Paul II says, the mystery spoken of in Ephesians 5 is great indeed. As God's salvific plan for humanity, that mystery is in some sense the central theme of the whole of Revelation. It's central reality. It is what God wishes above all to transmit to mankind in his words. See, I wasn't making that up. He said it. It's what he wants to communicate. That the marriage in the beginning, that the marriage of male and female in the beginning in Genesis was a sign that was pointing ahead to the marriage of Christ and the church, right? Mary is the personification of the church. She is the bride, right? So you've got... The bride in the beginning poured forth from the side of Christ, or from the side of Adam. Pouring out of Christ's side, John says, comes flowing out what? Blood and water. The two sacraments that constitute the church, baptism and Eucharist. You want to become part of the bride of Christ. You got to be baptized. You want to be fortified and built up as the bride of Christ. You need the Eucharist. Christ's bride is poured forth from his side just as Adam's bride is poured forth from his side. Right? This, is what, this, is, this is what Paul is seeing, that this is the great mystery, that the marriage in the beginning was pointing to the marriage of Christ in the church. And it's all fulfilled. It's all fulfilled in heaven, which we're going to talk about later. Right? So you have... A bride and groom come to the church on the day of their wedding. They say, this is my body given for you. And they lay their lives down. Because they're imitating and being taken up into Christ who said, this is my body given for you. Good Friday wasn't merely a murder. It was a wedding. And how do we experience that today? As the bridegroom meets us in the Eucharist, the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. This is my body given for you. Back to that quote from Mikhail Waldstein, the love of the Trinity reaches all the way through Christ's spousal love for the church to touch the bodies of men and women in history. Like the bridegroom's love isn't something we merely think about. The bridegroom's love enters our bodies. It touches our bodies. It fills our bodies. So let me just land this plane here. So what theology of the body is not it is not new in the sense of like a break from church teaching it's like it's it's in the scriptures right it's in the scriptures it's in the church fathers what it is it's a rearticulation of 2000 years of church teaching but with a deeper understanding with a deeper understanding it, and it's it's directly answering as the antidote, the chaos of our modern times, right? The chaos of the sexual revolution, the industrial revolution, the technical revolution, are deep, this war against our humanity. It's an antidote to that cancer. Nor is theology of the body primarily about sexual morality. You hear people say sometimes that theology of the body, ah, that's that fifth grade chastity stuff. Uh, So wrong. Or I just say, so not enough. Does theology of body have something to, say, something to say about chastity? Absolutely. That's like saying Beethoven's fifth symphony is about air vibrations. I mean, yeah, but no. Right? It's not just simply about chastity. It's, it's an adequate anthropology. It's understanding what a human person is. Where do we come from? Where are we going? How do we get there? Which is, if you want to have a flourishing, happy, fulfilled life, you need answers to those questions. It's the answer what is the meaning of life? And it is the thing that helps us understand, like, it's the lens that helps us understand all of the church's teachings. Right? The Catechism says this that the entire Christian life, so how much of the Christian life? The entire Christian life. All of it, without exception, all things included, from popes to cardinals to youth groups to bingo, like all of it is included. The catechism says the entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ for his church. If you don't know theology of the body, you have no idea what that means. You have no idea what that means. Theology of the body is the, make, is the thing that makes sense of all the different pieces. Like how, how is it all related how is it all related? What does what morality have to do with canonizing saints? What does uh, interpreting scripture have to do with chastity? It all comes together through this lens of theology of the body. It's an explanation of God's plan for humanity, which is union. Union. That's what he wants. He wants union. Communion and love which brings life. Satan's plan is separation, fracture, brokenness, which brings death. That's what we're seeing in our world. And why, so the, the question should answer itself. Why does this matter? <laughs> why does this matter? Because it's the roadmap to happiness and flourishing. And it's the deepest, the deepest desires of our hearts. The deepest desires of our hearts which is not simply to be liked or tolerated, but loved into eternity for forever. So uh, let's end by praying together. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.